when Cabot came up through the ranks as a hitman. Truly, uh, I know of 50, 60 lives that he's personally responsible for, and that's, you know, without Oma. You know, so he's got a lot of blood on his Nice fella. You know, he just happens to be a mass murderer. Welcome back to the Live Drop. This is episode 26. I'm Mark Valley. My guest is David Rupert, trucker, traveler, unlikely IRA infiltrator. He spent seven years informing for the FBI and MI5 while working his way as high as the IRA War Council. His lengthy testimony brought justice to several key players in the terrorism network of the Troubles, including real IRA leader Mickey McKevitt, who had a role in the Armic bombing which killed 31 civilians and injured hundreds. David shapes his perceptions of the Irish on their northern border from his arrival with his wife and collaborator Maureen to his testimony deep in the Republic of Ireland where loyalties are often at odds with personal safety. I wanted to talk about David's on-the-job training. He learned his spycraft as he went along with no prior instruction, taking advice from his MI5 handlers and using his own instincts and common sense. He shares what he learned from the experience. Begin transmission now. You know, if you're dealing with the with the Irish, and I'm speaking about the Republic, mm-hmm. you never know on who's who's on whose side. You know, uh, I met a very high uh, Irish police officer who uh, said, you know, spoke, you know, like uh, oh, like Bobby Sands was a hero. Well, you know, <laughs> Bobby Sands was in the IRA, and matter of fact, Bobby Sands, I don't know if you know who he is. He was. Um, the first hunger striker to die in course, 1985. Yeah. Well, Bobby Sands' sister is married to Michael McKevitt. Uh, you know, you know when somebody's. I remember going to court against McKevitt at the in uh, Dublin, and the guy who we, you know, when you were in the UK, they had all the bells and whistles, bulletproof, bombproof cars, and everything. When you got to Ireland. They gave me and the FBI agent I was with in the back seat of the car a ballistics blanket. And they said, well, if the shooting starts, duck under the blanket. Well, that's assuming you don't get hit with the first round. Uh, but the guy in the front seat, again, was talking about, oh, what a hero Bobby Sands is. I was like, wait a minute. I'm go- you're taking me to court, and you got the gun. And we're going to go-, go to court and try to put his brother-in-law away for life, you know. But Nobody put this all together. You know what I mean? Before I started understanding what was going on over there, I, I just heard the what they call rebel songs. But no, it has a completely different meaning over there. We had a pub in, in uh, well, it was actually in County Leitrim, but it was on the sea, actually. And it was up oh, north of Sligo, uh, maybe 25 miles. And it was called the Drow's Bar. And the pub came with a caravan park, you know, which is like a camping ground. There were all, I used to call it an IRA theme park because they were all, they were either ex you know, like IRA members who had done time, IRA members, because they allow you out of prison on holiday over there. So they might be serving a life sentence, but they'll give you, depending on how, you know, the situation, then you might be only have to report on the weekends to prison. It was just a real rough, and nobody paid their rent. You had to chase them all over for the rent. But we had, there was a 60-year-old or so woman whose uh, son-in-law had done uh, 19 years in prison and or was doing 19 years and he was just out on holiday. I don't remember the situation, but she's bouncing a two-year-old uh, grandkid on her knee telling him how when he grew up, he needed to go kill cops. So, I mean, you know, that's, that's the mentality that uh, 
that you deal with, you know, and, and it's hard to, you know, you learn it when you're two years old, it's got to be true, you know. Was that an opportunity for you to learn about the Irish cultural differences, how to fit in? Oh, it, yeah, absolutely. I had a, this Joe O'Neill, you know, I, I, I have a, I've always had, as you can see from the stuff, a big interest in history. Mm-hmm. And when I first went over there, meeting some of these, like this Joe O'Neill, who at the time, I was probably 60 at the time, but, you know, 60 in Ireland is probably like 80 here <laughs> in a lot of cases. Uh-huh. Uh, it had been road hard and put away wet, you know. And But he was, it would have been liking, like going back in history and talking to a Civil War person or, you know, like a general or something. And he was the head of the, of the finance committee. But were those guys, was it history, were they like historian historians or were no, they just? No, not at all. No, I mean, a lot of it, I mean, like if you said, I remember one time I said, uh, gee, you know, I mean, Ireland particularly is uh, is pretty barren as from like trees and stuff. I said, where, mm-hmm. do, where where's all the trees? Well, it's the ground doesn't grow trees. You know what I mean? Because it's, it's, uh, uh, peat moss on top of rocks, you know, I mean, the tree couldn't grow there because it would fall down. All the Brits took them, you know, it was that mentality. See, in 1980, I think it was 1986, the provisional IRA, which is the big IRA, mm-hmm. was was taken over by Jerry Adams and his crew from Belfast out of the hands of Joe O'Neill and the crew from the South, you know, from the Republic. And so the crew from the Republic, as often happens, and when two Irishmen don't agree, they both start separate groups. They started a new group called the Continuity IRA. Mm -hmm. And the the good thing about the Continuity IRA is they had talked about doing a lot of stuff, but they never did anything. You weren't, you know. And and if they'd have found out who I was, they'd have just, you know, maybe punched me and sent me home. And so, you know, that was okay, but you know, I, I didn't get to stay there. Plus, you have to remember in all this, I I got probably, I mean, I never had any training. Nobody trained me. So everything I, all my tradecraft and stuff, I had to, you know, I developed, you know, it, it kept me alive in a way. So. Well, you weren't really in a situation where you could learn by trial and error. How, how do you develop a tradecraft? Well, I mean, you know, you learn stuff. Now, the, the Brits were, a little better about it. They would once in a while give me some advice, do this, but the FBI was, you Norman, know, they didn't, yes, they, you're uh, my, you're my well, that, that was the original guy. Uh, mm-hmm. He was there like, uh, he was like, you know, when they send in the salesman for you, he was their salesman to get me on board. And then, you know, we went down to uh, Southampton and that's where he took me and, you know, spent a few days down there and talking and he was, you know, kind of like a pre-brief, you know, mm-hmm. when we first started work. And, and then on the way back, we stopped in uh, Winchester Cathedral and there's a statue there of Alfred I, who was considered the first British spy. This is going, I think he reigned back in, I don't know, like, you know, six, seven, eight hundred or something. And so they they were, you know, they knew that I had a weakness for history. Uh, they're, they're horribly smart uh, at the intel business. Now, the FBI might be now, but this was going back, you know, the, in the mid-90s. 
And they weren't, the FBI wasn't in the intelligence business per se then. They were interested in, you know, stopping the money going over there from the U.S., but they weren't really in the intelligence business. I don't know how they are now. But the, the Brits all thought they were James Bond and tried to act like them. Good, they were excellent to work with. Now over here, the same thing, you know, the, uh, with that, when, I, when I was over there, I worked for the Brits. And when I was over here, I was on loan to the Brits from the FBI when I was over there, but I worked specifically for them. When I was over here, I worked specifically for the FBI. And if any, any of the information between the two intelligence organizations, now, I shared all my reporting in the same email. You know, I would put the two, each, each one of them, and they'd get it at the same time. But anything else other than the emails, I wasn't supposed to tell uh, the FBI anything that I learned from the Brits and likewise, because they can't do that. It all has to go through. If, if the FBI wants to talk to the Brit, it has to go through the legal attache in London. That is or there Dublin. Anything, is there anything in your life, personal life, that you could draw from? It just seems like you had a lot of things to juggle. Well, uh, you know, I I was uh, been always pretty much been in business, right? And always like in the trucking business. So right off the bat, you're in a kind of a gray area. I was very good at what I did. I was just very poor at the financial end of it, back pocket accounting, you know. I got enough money in my back pocket to pay the bills, I'm happy. If I don't, I got a problem. So as a result, it left me with a a number of failed situations. And in doing so, you just learn how to deal with the negative. Mm-hmm. And uh, you got to realize also, I'm I'm six. Well, I was six seven. I'm probably six six now. You shrink as you get older a little bit, but <laughs> and three hundred three hundred pounds. I I'm not Irish and I'm not Catholic. So here, here you got a, a non-Catholic, non-Irish, big guy going over there and just got accepted like, you know, I was one of the boys. Actually, I was the only second person in Irish history to have a second person in Irish history, an American, to have a seat on the Army Council, on an Army Council over there. Yeah, and these are tried and true people who've taken the tests and done all the things that you have to do to be accepted into that group. But, you know, I was such an anomaly. And we bought our way into those groups with their own money. You know, I'd pick up the money over here from the groups that raised it and carry it to them over there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, follow the money, you know. And I couldn't do, I was supposed to do anything that was illegal. So I could take over up to $10,000, which worked out well because it made the money last longer, you know, that I'd pick up. If I picked up more than 10000 why well, I had some for the next time, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, that makes you pretty relevant. And that's how uh, when McKevitt stole me from continuity IRA, it was a big coup, you know, because I was the money man. You know, and looking back at it, it's like, you know, who are these people? Uh, you know, my wife and I, because my wife worked with me. You know, and she's, she is Southside Irish from Chicago. She she worked with me, and as a matter of fact, we used to fondly refer to her as ninety nine. You know that was her. Yeah. Uh, you know, for the old Maxwell Smart program. Uh, there was something in the but, book about how you worked together, like writing notes, or I. You know, I was have a well, probably not a photographic memory, but a real ex- excellent. I could go into like I'd say I'd go to one of these army council meetings uh, up in the fucking nowhere at some farmhouse. I could like pick out four or five cars in the yard and remember the plate numbers 
and then still remember everything from the meeting. So like if we went into a situation and she was with me, when we left, I would just start dictating everything I could remember from the meeting to her and she'd make notes of it. So when I got home, you know, I could remember more that way. She was like, we went to her and I and McCabot and his wife went to dinner one night and that was just, just right out of a, a movie. You know, here McCabot came up through the ranks as a hitman. Truly, uh, I know of 50, 60 lives that he's personally responsible for. And that's, you know, without Oma, you know, so he's got a lot of blood on his head. Nice fella. You know, he just happens to be a mass murderer. And I like, you know, the good thing was, is I liked him and he liked me. So we, you know, we got on well, you know. So what is it that you liked? I mean, you said he was really, I mean, he's just a brutal human being, but I mean, from what he's done and his attitudes, but what is it about him that you kind of connected with? I don't know if there's anything that, you know, there's some people you meet that you just like, and there's some people that you meet and you think, my God, this guy's an asshole. And maybe without even hardly ever saying anything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, well, our first meeting, uh, we met at this hotel up, oh, it was up along the border there. And he come in with Seamus McGrath who just happened to die in prison this past week. We sat down around the table in the middle of the lobby of this big hotel and started talking about IRA business. Nobody paid any attention, nothing. I, I came with two guys with me, uh, this Mickey Donnelly from Derry and then the Phil Kent from uh, Canada, actually. Phil Kent used to be big time in the IRA supply in, but a long time ago. And he's try, trying to make himself relevant to this meeting by talking about, you know, Cyprus and this connection, Lebanon and that connection. And none of it meant anything today. You know, it was all gone. Yeah. And so, you know, basically, <laughs> McCabot told him to shut the fuck up, you know. So we just discussed things back and forth. And there was a mood between us that we liked each other, you know. And I had to, you know, I, I developed this thing in my head that I was like two people. That one person was all behind him. And then the intelligence part of me, or, you know, they took the notes in in the head from the guy who was, they thought they were dealing with. And I equated it to be a academy performance. But if you didn't get the academy, it it meant whether you rode home first class in the plane or in the belly of the plane in the coffin, Mm -hmm. because either you won at the performance or you're fucked. Only once was I just, I was in an engineer's meeting and McKevitt was there and there was uh, the lead bomb maker for the group was there and, and then the um, the tech man. But it was a different tech man that I had seen at the last meeting we had. And at the last meeting we had, that tech guy asked me for some PGP software, which is at the time it was pretty high end uh, oh, encryption software. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 of course, you know, I, I bought it over here, but before it got there, it had been processed and I have no idea what was done to it. If anything, I don't know. Like, I, you know, I handed it off. I got it back. I gave it to the guy. You know, I said, and, you know, this is what your other man wanted. And he challenged me. He says, how do I know this isn't full of bugs or something? And I, you know, I just see fear ran through my and but i had you couldn't show it because uh these people might not have phd in terrorism but you know they're real street savvy and you know they'd sense it right off so i got control right off (laughs) right off quick and i threw it at him i said hey 
If you don't want the fucking stuff, you tell the guy who wanted it that you, you know, you threw it away. He asked me for it. I give it to you. It's your problem. Who is that guy? Yeah. Who, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you see yourself doing something like, and you think about coming back in the belly of the plane. Yeah. But... Well, yeah, but I mean, but yeah, but I mean, what, what are you going to say? You know, I mean, you're either going to say, uh, it, you know, if you uh, cried like I wanted to, that, that wouldn't have looked good. And, and you know what? I always pretended <laughs> that I had, you know, Emma, you know, the Brits knew that where I would now, now remember, I was working for the Brits, but I was in the Republic, probably not supposing to be there. You know, nobody knew at that time uh, in the Republic, as far as I know, that I was actually working for the Brits. Nobody knew. They kept the thing, the FBI, everybody kept everything so close to their vest uh, about who I was because they were so afraid. I mean, during this whole process, he was an assistant director. I can't think of his name now. Got taken off for you know leaking information to uh, Russia or working for the for Russia. Very very high up. Uh, I can't. I and again, I don't remember his name now. But oh, Hanson. And you know the Russians work with the IRA and would give them information. So it was very close to the vest. Uh, they knew that there was somebody you know as far as like headquarters in D.C. But outside of a very, you know, half a dozen people that were very close to the situation, nobody knew who I was because nobody could be, you know, they didn't have. And this was before 9-11. I got done nine months before 9-11 happened, you know. And, they, you know, this type of operation now, as I was told, couldn't happen, which is sad because, you know, there was. Well, I, I, I'm told that, you know, being an outside person and being at you know such a high which is really sad there was a lot of issues that came up especially after you know we went to court then i went to court without an agreement for a settlement because of some irish laws they couldn't do that supposedly because you know you, you could never believe anything anybody told you from from the fbi or when i knew that they were telling me a story from the fbi you couldn't really call them liars, and I always just re refer to it as sales fluff. So that that lets you out of the bucket from calling him a liar. And they they accepted that. It's like, well, he knows we're lying, so you know we'll go on. You know. So anyway, when we got done, I was said the minute we're done in court, we'll have a deal for you. So we're leaving court now, mind you. This is night two thousand five. Two thousand five. Uh, it was like. In, I think, or the end of July. Okay. I'd spent the longest time in history on a cross, on a, you know, a cross in Ireland. I'd spent, I think, I'd been on the stand for 13 days or something like that. And I was about in tears because... Uh, and you were visible, too. You were uh, visible as well. Well, you know, the first thing we had to do when we went to court was, was to see if I could fit in the box because the courtroom dates back to the 1700s. <laughs> And they didn't know what they'd do if I couldn't fit in the box because that never happened. That could be a whole new set of situations. You have, did you, have you spent much time in Ireland or, you know? About four or five days in Dublin, but I did stay at the Shelburne. Really, really it was just Dublin. That's all I've really yeah. seen. So anyway, they're different. It's different there. And uh, <laughs> lots of times what they say is not remotely true. Like something real simple, like when you go over, oh, you brought the rain with you. 
you know, which rains there all the time. You know, you might have inadvertently be raining when you got there, but it, it was only because it rained the day before and the day before that, you know, at some time. Uh-huh. And uh, so anyway, we had a meeting at uh, the FBI in Chicago and they, they had uh, the second and third in line in the prosecution come over to this meeting. And so they, they were there and a couple, couple of the attorneys from DC and, uh, you know, there was 10, 12 people there. The FBI asked the Irish prosecutors, uh, what about computers? Can you have computers? Oh, no, they wouldn't be wanting to have any computers in the courtroom. <laughs> I just kind of chuckled to myself. Now, I didn't know whether they could have computers or not, but I'm thinking to myself, you really want to check that one out. So I told them, the FBI, I said, you know, you really want to look into that? No, I, he's the, like second line of the prosecution. Why would he tell us that? I said, because you don't understand how the Irish are. So we get to court. And of course, our attorneys, not a laptop or computer between them, they've got two um, barristers and there's about four or five solicitors behind them. There's a, a woman from the U.S. who's an attorney from New Mexico, and she was uh, the attorney for Wen Ho Lo and the Wen Ho Lo case, which was to do with the atomic place in uh, New Mexico that was selling secrets to the Chinese, and she got him off, and and she looked just like the witch from uh, Wizard of Oz, Mm -hmm. and they've all got laptops, and not only do they have laptops, they got a program on them that runs through, you know, they put in my answers and it sifts through them and make sure they're consistent or if there's any inconsistencies. And it, oh. and the FBI is standing there with their finger in their ass. So, and nothing, you know, I mean, hey, listen, if I didn't hadn't been over there so much and they told me that, I'd believe it too. But, if you hadn't been collecting rent from a caravan park. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. It's just, it was just a, just a different situation. And then you know, then Oma happened and killed all those people. And we were just, yeah, I was just devastated by that. Just, you know, and nobody know, yeah. no, nobody knew who was on whose side. And it was just a fuck up, you know, it, it, which is a lot of what happens over there. They had a 500 pound car bomb with two drunks, because you always get drunk before you take a car bomb out. They got the Oma and the, where they were supposed to park it. You know, they had, you know, the, the there was cars parked there. So they had to take it up the street. So then when they arm arm a bomb, they used to use these uh, parking timers. They use them in Europe. They're like a little, oh, the size of a uh, silver dollar maybe. And they you can time them for like an hour. And it's a mechanical timer. And then they would... T- so people, were, people were evacuating the... Right, they were the evacuating the wrong right? place, yeah. When they go out with these bombs, like if it fails... When they set them up and they set this box up, which is the, you know, the uh, detonating timer, uh, there's a uh, there's like a rubble or a wooden dowel in there that they make the bombers pull out and bring back just to prove that they set it in case it doesn't go off. So they don't even trust their own people. Then then as time went on, we got you know involved with the Iraqis and McKevitt was involved with the uh, uh, the Libyans you know before and uh, the Georgians were in there and they were buying weapons in Eastern Europe. So when it got done. When we were getting done, because we were getting going from the Clinton administration into the Bush administration, uh, and they were tr- trying to wrap it up before George Bush took office because 
they didn't know how Clintons were real supportive of the Irish deal. And uh, mm-hmm. another thing that came up, did you read in there about the guy, our fishman coming in and uh, Hillary Clinton's first lover happened to be named David Rupert and he was from New York and he was about my age. And uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Taff, like Jimmy Taff, I guess. Is that the guy who the, pushed you against a wall? Uh, yeah. Well, the fish guy and he gets all, he gets all whipped up. He comes in and he says, it's you, isn't it? I said, what do you mean it's me? He says, you were fucking Hillary Clinton. I said, no, I don't even know her. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? Well, her book just came out, or this this uh, autobiography of her, and her and her first lover was David Rupert, and he was such and such an age, and he was from New York. Well, he was from Syracuse. He was a couple years older than me, but it was close enough, and I said, well, it wasn't me. So we had, that took a while to get over that, because everybody got all suspicious, and you know, right. uh, prove you're not the guy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that I wasn't Hillary banging Clinton. Hillary, you know? So I, you know, cause I said something smart, like, well, I said, she's not hard to look at, but it wasn't me at the time, you know, but, you know, but it wasn't, there's a lot of humor that I'd come up with that they just didn't get you, Cause you'd start out with a joke. Well, did you hear about like the three legged dog or something that couldn't find the man who shot his paw and they'd look at each other and well, so also had a three-legged dog down the other end of town, you know, just off on a tangent. It never got the joke. So uh, this is, you know, <laughs> it was just a... It sounds like, uh, yeah, it sounds like a bunch of, you know, a bunch of gangsters sitting around. Are you, are you making fun of me? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, it was, um, it was truly, uh, you know, and as, as we got further into it, you know, and it got into the real IRA in there, you know, it really became every time I left the house, you know, Maureen, you know, said she was about in tears because she didn't know if I was coming back, you know, because these guys were were murder, were killers, you know. Uh, McCabot's wife would kill you as quick as look at you, you know. She's, uh, and again, she's a nice lady. She just, she grew up in a very Republican family and, you know, her brother died on starvation. So what, what's that uh, teach you, tell you, you know? And, you know, the good thing about, finding Sean as a writer is that Sean knew as much about the same people that I was dealing with because he had been following my, you know, as a reporter for all these years and he's got, yeah, he knew these characters. Yeah. He's got balls the size of basketballs because he goes up to, he said he went to McKevitt's house. Not only did he go to his <laughs> house, but then he goes back to, uh, the uh, Bernadette's mother died, and they had her laid out in the house. He goes to, you know, the wake at the house, and uh, and this oh this guy that died uh, this week, his name was uh, Seamus McGron. Well, when I was introduced to him, uh, I didn't get the last name, but I got uh, they they called they nicknamed him Shay. Well, you got a terrorist, and they call him Shay. The first thing you think of is C H E Shay, you know. So when I first reported on him, you know, I used the C-H-E Shea of Shea Guevara. Uh, you know, I mean, just I thought it was a nickname relating to that. So as time went on, I found out it was short for Seamus McGron. So that was corrected. Well, it became a joke in the real IRA. And Seamus McGron ran a, uh, you know, like a house window manufacturing place or installing place in uh, Dundalk or in that area. So. Sean, uh, the writer, goes to see him, and he's got a big picture of Shea Guevara hanging on the wall behind his desk. 
you know, because oh, of, because it was a joke. Uh, something would be funny, but then they'd take you out and shoot you in the head. And the problem with it was, and this is, you know, I always knew that there was a good chance that, you know, if you, you know, got caught, you'd be executed. And that was what they did. Yeah. So I'd come to terms with that, you know. You know, I didn't intend to wind up in that situation, but you're in it. And, you know, it paid well. But the problem with it, well, I tell the Brits, I say, but I, what I really don't care for was the, was the day or two of torture where they cut various body parts out of you beforehand. I said, I'm really not interested, <laughs> <laughs> interested in that. Can I skip so, that? So if it means you got to do a raid and you might lose me, go ahead and do that. <laughs> Uh, what was that? What you just said? You broke up. I, I said, if you, if you're going, if, if the choice is whether we do this raid to get them out, but we might lose them, mm-hmm. go ahead and do the raid, and and you might lose oh. me, but at least they're not going to cut my balls off first. So yeah, uh, yeah. because they cut your fingers off and then they cut your balls off, and you know, pretty much then you were done, but uh, because you'd bleed out, but and then they'd shoot you, of course. You know, and I mean, it's still going on over there. I mean, they're still executing people for, and that was one of the things that always struck me. Here's here's a group that are fighting the British, but they killed 3,000 of their own people and hardly any British in the last round of trouble. So why do you go kill your own people? Right. And then they, they would complain about, you know, civil rights and human rights and everything all the time. But then if they come and they thought you were, you know, handing off information to the security forces, they torture you until you confess, then they kill you. So, you know, where's the human rights in that? And I guess a lot of people in, in Ireland more or less agreed with you. I mean, there was a overwhelming relief that the yeah. IRA was kind of broken up at that yeah, time. Yeah, and more so, you know, and, and I came into it right at a time when the peace process was coming into play. And once the peace process come into play and they got provisional IRA on, uh, you know, in in the peace process, then they had to prevent the spinoff of the IRA members from the provisional IRA off into these dissident groups. And I was like Mm -hmm. right in the middle of it. I was well-placed. So that was why I became so important in this thing was because uh, I was so highly placed uh, you know, I was in a good place when it started, but became so highly placed, and they were trying to prevent the spinoff from the provisional IRA. So you could you could kind of exploit that that conflict from, you know, provisional IRA shift people leaving that and going into the right. real IRA. And, and I think they also had wasn't there something else McKevitt was doing? Didn't they have ammunition storage areas that? Well, McKevitt was the quartermaster general for the provisional IRA. And he was in charge of all the procurement and uh, big time uh, fellow, you know? So at the time he left, he he was the only one that knew where all the dumps were, you know, all the arms dumps were. So when the provisional IRA said that, you know, they were gonna turn in weapons, they couldn't even turn any weapons because they didn't know where they were. So, you know, of course he gave up a bunch of weapons but they didn't even know what they had. So of course he didn't give them all up, you know, they kept, but I mean, they still go around the country and some farmer will dig up a cache of muskets from, you know, yeah, well, no muskets. I mean, from back in the 1800s, you know, early 1800s from the rising in 1798. And, you know, I, I do agree. The British were, have been horrible to the Irish over the years, but they're not horrible to them now. 
you know, the British were horrible to yeah. the aboriginals in Canada and all over the world. But they're not horrible to them now, for the most part, you know. And so were the Americans been horrible to all kinds of different people around the world. But the problem still, do you understand how the six counties got colonized by the uh, Scottish? Actually, they're Scotch-Irish because they gave land, the British, in order to try to, to settle, they uh, used the Scottish to come down and try to settle the Irish, you know, and gave them land grants and stuff there. Well, of course, the six, six counties are the closest right. to Scotland. So you've got a situation there now where you've got part of its Protestant, you know, it's, it's a big Protestant Catholic thing, and it has been. Although there were some, you know, Wolf Tone was a Presbyterian and he was a big time IRA fellow. Um, so, you know, there's just, but you, the, the problem with it is the Irish themselves, you know, if you, if you have an agreement, the first thing you do is you duke it out. Second thing you do is start two groups mm-hmm. you know, and then go have a beer, you know. Right. I used to play rugby, but it has that sort of, um, yeah. that kind of Scots Irish uh diplomacy where you go you play really hard against each other yeah. you know and then you drink beers afterwards and you laugh and you- yeah they, i remember coming back from uh dublin one day with a bunch of continuity guys and joe o'neill's car and this one guy and tommy uh i can't think he's the guy that owned the drows when it burned in a way and he was from he was from bundoran there where mm-hmm. joe was from and he starts going on about well they want to uh kill like a false flag operation and kill like uh, six Protestant families. And uh, see, Ulster is nine counties, but Northern Ireland is only six counties. And Donegal is actually part of Ulster Mm -hmm. originally, but when they partitioned it, Donegal's in the Republic now. Well, they wanted to kill, I don't know, six or nine Protestant families that lived in Donegal to try to start uh, an uprising, you know, between the two groups. I'm mm-hmm. up front in the car with Joe, and I'm thinking to myself, and I'm the only one in this fucking car that's a Protestant, and they all and they all know it. Right. <laughs> well, let's not start with let's not start with the Protestant yeah. American, yeah. you know. There was, you know, I remember Joe telling me about there was a guy by the name of Daddy O'Connell that uh, actually he came to Canada. He was part of the upper echelon of the the continuity IRA and big time player uh, you know one time they were going to go over in Fermanagh which is across the border from from Donegal there and they were going to blow up this RUC station they were building so of course the first thing they do is they all get drunk and they go over there and they can't find a fucking way in the station or anything else to blow it up so they come back you know and don't do anything come to find out they go over there and do some recon the next day and the front was all locked up but the whole back end of the station was like you know they were building it it was all all open you know what i mean is everything starts out everything starts out usually with the drink and uh then goes from there and as my father-in-law who was an old-time irishman from chicago said there's only two reasons a man doesn't drink is because one's because he shouldn't and the other one's because he can't (laughs) (laughs) but and there's a lot of them that fall in both those categories so could you ever imagine i mean you're like you're driving in a the, the earlier story you were talking about, you're driving in a car and they were talking about that false flag operation. I mean, could you, did you imagine for yourself, what if that was going on like where you, where you were from? Well, you know, the, the, the whole thing about that is the fucking country's only 
150 miles wide and probably 300 miles long or less. And all this trouble. Yeah. And, and you know, a size the size of upstate New York, you know. But, you yeah. know, going, if, I don't know if you ever get to Malone, but if you go to Malone and go to the Malone Fairgrounds, there's a plaque there, uh, like mm-hmm. a state historical plaque, is that's where the Fenians, now this is going back into the 1800s, that's where yeah. they camped out getting ready to go invade Canada. You know, when they talk about, you see these signs over there that say uh, segregated school. It ain't segregated black to white. It's segregated Christ, or uh, you know Catholics and Protestants. That's what it means. In in Bundoran, when you went down and turned out the road to Kinloch, there was a church on the corner there. It was the Church of Ireland, which is Protestant. And you go around the corner and up the road, and on the other side was the Catholic church. So I'm in. Uh, somebody was asking directions one day at the bar, and I said, "You go down there and." I said, you'd turn up on that road just past the church there, and, and uh, you know, that takes you up to Ken Lock. And somebody at the bar says, well, uh, the church is up around the corner. I said, no, no, the church on the corner. No, no, that's not a church. That's the Church of Ireland. <laughs> it's called the Church of Ireland. What the fuck is it, you know? <laughs> yeah, and, and my wife would say that when we had the pub there, I'm her third husband. But, of course, she's my fourth wife, so... And we've been married 25 years this year. So she would say that. Yeah, there you you go. She thought she'd been married to two drunks uh, before until we had that pub there. And then she found out they were just two wannabes because these guys, these people were really drunk. Uh, I've seen, you know, get so drunk that they would just tip off and fall off the stool on the floor. And uh, I thought you know, once the guy one day was dead, you know, he wasn't dead. He was just dead drunk. And then, you know, I mean, everybody can drink, but for the most part, again, it was either because they couldn't or shouldn't. So, you know, you said you, you said you had to kind of learn things yeah. on your own. And I was just wondering if you just ever thought about it, like, well, why did that work for me? Why did that work for you? And in the book, they bring out some, um, you know, Sean brings out some pretty good points about, you know, your history, your photographic memory and kind of fascination with history and so forth and your experience in trucking. But I was just wondering if you came up with any sort of rules on, on your own. Uh, about the only about the only rule per se was, is, I mean, everything was like by sense. If it looked too dangerous, you know, I would try to avoid it. There was some things that I, w- I had some real p- peculiarities mm-hmm. over, like I would never stay at anybody's house. And the Brits had a problem with that. You mean to tell me if McKevitt invited you to stay at the house, you wouldn't stay there? I said, not if I could help it. Why? Well, we'd like you to, well, because it's just something I grew up at home with. I mean, wherever we go to visit somebody, I'll stay in a hotel. But if somebody comes to visit us, I want them to stay in a hotel too. Not because I just don't, I don't care to have people around or I don't care to, like that. So that was one thing. And I quit drinking uh, as we got up the line. Uh, over there, I quit drinking because it was, uh, I was just so afraid that I would, uh, you know, say something I shouldn't. Mm-hmm. And I would, I tried to never share a room with one of the bad guys because I was afraid I'd talk in my sleep. How'd you, how'd you pull off the drinking one? Cause that seems to be like a way of, at least in some of those societies. And I've been, I spent some time in Australia once and I wasn't drinking at the time. And I, I, I got the sense that people didn't trust me. Well, you know, over there, if somebody doesn't drink, again, it's because they can't. 
you know, oh, like there you go. Yeah. Either their stomach's ready to fall out or uh, I would assume you have cirrhosis or something. <laughs> or or you know, if we make this guy drink and it's because he turns ugly, we don't want that. And another thing, I always wondered if my actual size ever saved me because you know the the proverbial uh, white van pulling up on the street and you know, dragging you into it. All I'd have to do is drop to the ground and take, you know, four or five people to drag me into a van. I mean, this is because of my size and weight, you know. I can see them all pulling up and saying, guys, we're going to need a bigger van. Yeah. <laughs> Melbourne Hall. And, uh, you know, it's the uh, airbase or the base there in the UK. It's, uh, Lake and Heath and Melbourne Hall are right together. We stayed in the officer's quarters there. And we had an issue at first there because they didn't want me going back and forth to the Oh, like the PX or whatever they call it, you know, uh, with without some of their members with me. Now we're supposed to be in a secure base, and they were still worried about losing me. And Is I said, you know, in, in England or in Ireland? Yeah, in, in England. It's actually a British air base that's leased to the U.S. And it's it's uh, they've got uh, British perimeter, and then U.S. got you know U.S. perimeter inside. Right. And so there's two perimeters actually. And then the base, you know, so so we had a big set to right off because we we're supposed to be, this was the first trial. This wasn't McKevitt's trial. This was the Slovakian three trial. Mm -hmm. And we were supposed to be there for, uh, well, it was going to be a couple of weeks and it was a couple of weeks. And then the trial was canceled. But, uh, you know, no, we got to have somebody with you all the time. I said, I can't do that. You know, I said, I'm used to working alone. I'm used to operating alone. And. I don't, you know, I said, I don't care if you hide behind the trees and follow me where I'm going. I just don't want to have to be with you. You you could go into the one side of the PX, which was like the kind of quasi public side, but you could only go into the PX side if you had ID and like the newspapers and stuff were in the PX side. So I'd go down in the morning and I found out that if I put my hands behind my back and just strolled in there, Everybody thought I was a retired general or something, and nobody ever questioned me about nothing. So yeah. I go in and get my papers and come back. So finally, one day they said, "Where fucking in the newspapers? Is it the PX?" <laughs> they would they wouldn't even sell them to them with the uh, Department of Justice creds in there. I didn't have any creds. <laughs> yeah. And uh, well, well, how are you getting them? I said because I strolled in there and picked them up, and I said I guess they thought I was a general or something. Didn't have the balls to ask me. And I had been getting them every day, and. Uh, you but it was the, just your power uh, of looking like you belonged. Right. Exactly. That was just it. And uh, it was like, you know, I, I, you know, like I dare you to ask me who I am. And the other thing, too, is, you know, it's so funny. Never leave my car out at night. Always behind the locked garage door. So it saves me crawling under it every morning because that would be a big, uh, a big hit. You know, like car bombs would be a big thing in Ireland. And uh, I remember like flying out of, uh, I'd fly in and out of, uh, oh, Midway Airport in Chicago, a fair amount, and, and coming flying back into there, and you're crawling around in the snow looking under the car. And the fucking guy in the next car is looking at me like, what's he doing? <laughs> and you'd always, you'd always <laughs> act like you dropped your keys to get down and look for your keys, you know, but you're on your hands and knees looking all underneath the car. Yeah, that's kind of life in okay. the spy lane so what were the most dangerous moments that you had where you felt you were in the most danger 
during those seven years? Well, the one most, the, 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 the most dangerous one was the, uh, you know, in the engineers meeting, you know, because there was, I think there was one, two, three, four, Mickey and three other guys in there. We're in a, uh, what do they call that? Um, council housing. Uh, so they're like all, uh, oh, they're like little uh, small uh, townhouses in, in a long rows. And we were in there and we went, it was a real secure, you know, real, I found it later on again to show where the Garda was. But, you know, we went in there, it was dark. And then this came up and the guy challenged me about, you know, who I was, whether I was a British agent or not. And that was the only time that I really had, you know, like the uh, adrenaline in the, you know, that you could taste, <laughs> that you could taste the fear, but that one. And then there was a, uh, and I don't know if it really, I think you may have talked about it in the book. I had a hard time reading the book and so did my wife, because it's just, I, I can't watch, um, like spy shows on tv i won't watch because i can't take the i've had a real problem with that uh can't take the pressure really uh that's fascinating yeah. i'm i'm similar yeah. i just i just bite my nails i fast forward like what happened what happened yeah i, I don't I even like watching uh, the wizard of oz even though i know it yeah happened. <laughs> yeah i i just uh, if it's two uh two uh or serial killers or uh anything like that i you know i i like we watch a lot of British, matter of fact, almost all British or Australian TV, I, you know, on BritBox or that type of thing. But anyway, that, and then there was a meeting and I was probably more so afraid because Maureen was with me. It was in um, Derry or London Derry, depending on which side you're on, it's called. And uh, it's Mickey Donnelly. His one goal in life is to kill cops. That was all he ever thought about, want to kill a cop. So he's there, and he was a pretty nice fellow, too. He just wanted to kill cops. And uh, he had a wife and, you know, what, a half dozen kids or so. And, I mean, ranging from in, in college to seven, eight years was old. Was she the one that was suspicious because and, you always kept receipts? Uh, yeah, and that's funny because I never kept receipts. Yeah. If, but if I did, you know, I might have inadvertently kept some receipts then, but it wasn't anything – I didn't get paid – I, I didn't get paid on the basis of what receipts I had. They just gave me money and I spent yeah. it. But I would keep receipts for the Irish groups in the U.S. to show where their money went. Mm -hmm. And so whether she inadvertently saw me doing that and thought it was something else, but uh, that family, Mickey today, Mickey was one of the hooded men. You know who the hooded men were? No. Uh, they were? They were back in the... I think it was in the 70s or 80s. Oh, uh, right. The, the, by the English. Well, the British grabbed these, these uh, bunch of op IRA operatives and took them in and were doing uh, uh, de uh, deprivation uh, studies on them and mm -hmm. hoods. And, and he was one of them. And he probably was never right after that, mm -hmm. you know. But so I, today, he and I are friends on Facebook. Are you serious? And we, we, yeah, we talked on occasion. And he's the one that introduced me to McKenna. And, uh, but anyway, he wanted, to, he was trying, he wanted to be his own group. He was, he was involved with continuity army, but he wanted his own group. He got, uh, oh, there was, there was a couple other groups. There was a group called the INLA who spent, who killed a lot more of their own members, uh, each other than they ever, ever did any harm to anybody else. Mm -hmm. So we went to this, 
we met at this guy who was a friend of Mickey's house in Derry, and it was these it was old Victorian rose house, row houses, gorgeous houses, you know. I mean, like something like brownstones in New York or something, you know. So we went into this, and we all and it was it probably hadn't been updated since they were built. And he lived there with his 94 year old mother, and he was gay, the 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 operative, this friend of Mickey's, and so we had this meeting there and the INLA guy comes with his minder which you know uh, you know they're what they would call his minder is who takes care of him so he comes with his minder he's in a wheelchair because somebody shot him and paralyzed him from the waist down and all the tattoos and there was uh my wife came in there well there was probably half a dozen people around the table yeah and and her and I there and you know I mean if if the thing went south you know I got her there to deal with too you know although she's kind of tough as a nut so uh but you know it was just a really upsetting really and and just uh and I knew I didn't know any of these guys personally but I knew their histories Mm -hmm. and none of them were good it might not even involve me if there was uh, a fight between two of them over, you know, you killed my friend and, you know, I killed, you know, I killed your friend, but you killed my friend. And, you know, who knows uh, when the shooting was going to start. Mm-hmm. So I went, you know, that was probably the other time that uh, we were really, uh, and I was always, you know, and, and on the other thing, I was always worried that uh, I was going to get fucked by my, uh, you know, I never trusted the FBI around the corner, you know, as far as, taking care of us so was that probably the most danger that maureen had been in yeah that was the, that would have been the most danger probably and and then the the uh dinner with mickey and i never got a straight answer on this but we were staying at this hotel uh, called the Carrickdale inn it's up on the road uh, going into the north out of uh dundalk it's right at the border matter of fact across the street and, and maybe 100 yards across the street of Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. And we were supposed to meet Mickey and his and uh, Bernadette at this oh, this restaurant out the Coast Road. We're getting ready to go. Mickey controlled the hotel, kind of. I mean, it was kind of considered IRA. You know, he it was his people that ran it. Uh, whether it was he was connected to the owner or whether it was just his people that you know were the, on the staff that were kind of controlled things. So we were in a wing of a hotel that really didn't have anybody else in it. I mean, I, I didn't ask for it. They put us there. But then there was a British guy that came in, and he's in the next room, which was really unusual. Because anytime you know, the Brits taught me that if anything looks like a, a coincidence, chances are it's not. When I say I had no training, that was the training I got, <laughs> you know. Uh, we'll give you a little tidbit of wisdom. So did they give you any of the tidbits or is that just, just kind of as things went along, they would tell you? Yeah, I mean, uh, no, no. I mean, it'd be just something that came up in conversation. It wasn't like, here's a rule you need to learn. Here's the dairy, here's the London dairy rules. Memorize them. Yeah. Yeah. So we're getting ready to go. And all of a sudden all the power goes out. We go, it was still daylight out, but it was approaching dark. So we go walking down the stairs and this, this, Brett's following us, and he gets to the top of the stairs behind us. He says, my God, the lights are out in England, too. And he was talking about Northern Ireland. I'm thinking to myself, I don't know who this asshole is, but he better, he, he better change what he's saying, or he'll be going out of here in a box, yeah. you know, because 
he was making a real point to be really English. And not the right, not the right crowd. Uh, right. When you start calling Northern Ireland England, and you're in the IRA hotel across the border, that's probably not the best thing to say. But anyway, we left there and we got down to this restaurant, and there was there was no power down there. It was you know the whole area was out of power. So I called McCabot, and McCabot said, "Well, meet us up to this other place in Dundalk." And I always insisted that the other place in Dundalk, you know, once you're away from things, it's harder to get surveillance, you know, when there's not, you know, in other words, the difference of being in, in the town or in a municipality or being out in the country at a restaurant, they couldn't get any surveillance close to us, you know? Mm-hmm. So we went in this restaurant on a, I don't know, it was on a Friday or Saturday night. It was very busy. The pub, you know, that was, but when we went in the restaurant part in the back and there was probably, I don't know, 30, 40 tables in there, we were the only ones in there. And the doors were all shut and there was Maureen and I and McCabot and his wife. We just had a chat. And so McCabot's wife is crying on Maureen's shoulder about how they're treating her children badly since the Oma bomb. Well, hey, listen, you killed 29 people. Go figure. And then... Uh, so Maureen's going, oh, gee, that's too bad. And I feel so bad for your children and this and that. So when we left and, you know, we we're off by ourselves. And I said, what the fuck was that all about? You know, I mean, they killed 29 people. She says, I thought I was supposed to say that. <laughs> I was supposed to feel sorry for them. I said, well, yeah, I guess you were. Good work. So, yeah, that was, yeah, that was really uh, life in the fast lane there. And then, you know, after when they decided to go, I had a contract that said that I didn't have to testify, ever testify, because I didn't trust the fucking the FBI that they wouldn't. I didn't trust that they wouldn't protect me because, number one, I didn't trust them, period. I wouldn't, didn't trust that they wouldn't pay me because, uh, they, you know, every month there was, you know, well, you know what this is doing to our budget and blah, blah, blah. Not my problem. They had to talk me into testifying. The Brits didn't want – the Brits wanted one of my handlers – during because I had three or four different handlers during the time I worked for the Brits. One of the handlers went on to be head of personnel for MI6, and which is the kind of like the CIA. So the Brits wanted me, as I found out later, to go to work for MI6 and work at like the Blood Diamond deal in Africa as coming from part of the, you know, being connected to the real IRA because the Brits are all more, they would rather let a situation go on you know, to, to keep going and keep gaining the intelligence. And, you know, they're always interested in who felt what and what kind of people they were. And, you know, that was their concern, you know, like the psychology behind every person. So they wanted me to go on and work the blood diamond thing, which, you know, I, I, I probably would have taken them up on at the time uh, because I was, you had gotten so far out there, you know, mentally that, you know, none of this that was a really big deal to me anymore, you know. The FBI, of course, everything needs to turn into a prosecution, and they wanted to turn into a prosecution. So they spent, oh, geez, they must have spent a month trying to talk to this. I'm just not interested. You know, nothing good can come of me testifying against the IRA, right. you know, especially in court in Ireland. Mm-hmm. So finally one day, you know, we just said, no, we're just not going to do it. And, and funny enough, the guy who was, was Mark Lundgren, who was our main handler at the time uh you and him could pass for brothers in a way he come out the house and so we told him we weren't going to do it 
And he said, well, listen, he says, I want you to think about it one more night. I said, okay. So that night I'm sitting there. Now I'm just channel surfing on TV. And I came to, it was, uh, was it Nova on uh, PBS? And there was a, a show on there about the aftermath of the Oma bomb. And there was two kids on there and one didn't have any bones left in his shoulder. And one, the girl was blind. And it went on about them. And I was so taken by the show that we decided we'd testify. Wow. So, of course, you know, the Maureen's and my joke was that it, it would have been almost literally impossible. That would have been the type of deal that if we were in Ireland and had a choice of two channels or something, the Brits would have put that on thinking there was a 50% chance I might watch it. But we had, uh, you know, we had... You we sure had I, the sure direct five wasn't getting into your cable somehow your cable <laughs> yeah. well it was on a pbs but i mean still yeah. i had to go to that station you know what i yeah. mean yeah and that but that was very very much like something mi5 would do i'll wrap this up but i'd love to talk to you again but uh, do you have anything else you want anything else you wanted to add this remember the guy i told you about that i threw out of the pub and he had hands like shovels uh -huh. Well, they're the local family there, the, the coal dealers, and uh, the father came in. This was before I had the pub. Uh, the father came in all upset that he had a goat. The goat got in the neighbor's garden, and the guard, the guard told him he had to kill the goat. And, uh, and of course, nobody's got guns or allowed to have guns, so they had to go down. And the sea cliff there was probably, I don't know, 35 feet high or so, out back of the bar uh, a little ways. So... They got to go down. They're going to go down and they're going to throw the goat off the cliff. And this, I mean, you got to picture all this because this is just the way it is there. And so, first of all, they all get drunk. So then they go down there and they're, and they're trying to push the goat off the cliff and the goat doesn't want to go very bad. Mm -hmm. And the goat shows, shows his head back and hooks his, <laughs> hooks his horn into the button loop on the old man's coat. Mm -hmm. And off over over the cliff they go together. Where the old man lands on top of the goat, kills the goat, and saves the old man's life. And so they all come back to the bar, you know, it's a big joke, funny, and finish getting drunk. Still being upset because the goat died, but uh, you know, <laughs> it's just the way life is there. But I mean, you know, this is just Ireland. You know, that's just the way shit happens. Thanks, uh, thanks for making the live drop. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Thanks, David. All right. Yeah, cheers. And that was my talk with David Rupert, IRA infiltrator. Find out more about him in Sean O'Driscoll's book, The Accidental Spy. Information available in the episode notes at thelivedrop.com. End of transmission. <laughs>